Oh, I clicked anyway. Oh, whatever. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Learn From Gaming Podcast. Uh, thank you, as always, for joining us. We try to, um, well, we're actually trying out a new format today. Uh, tonight, we are going to dig into games, what we can learn from them, and just why we enjoy them. So for those of you counting out there, this is actually episode 41, been a long hiatus. And this is uh, this is coming at you March 9th, 2022, if you need a time. My name is Chase Stolenberg, and today I am joined by a true friend of the show, Fred Rojas. Thank you so much, Fred, for joining us today. Um, right off the top, and before we get started, could you introduce yourself to the folks at home, just if anybody doesn't know who you are, um, and just oh, sort sure. of tell us what you do, and also feel free to plug anything right off the top. Okay, so first and foremost, if you just Google Fred Rojas, I promise you I'm the first one. That, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've been a, a, a friend of, especially what you guys are doing here for, for quite some time, uh, been behind it from the beginning because I, I've always really enjoyed and appreciated learning and especially in ways that are, I guess I would say more unique. So just to, to, and, and I, I feel like games is a, a unique way to learn, um, that is becoming more mainstream now, but wasn't always. Um, but yeah, uh, back to me. Um, I have always been really into video games uh, and uh, even started my own podcast back in 2008. We called it Video Game Purist. Uh, but I really found my my home. Yeah, and we joked about... Well, actually, back then when we did Video Game Purist, everything we played was on expert mode. So that was the big deal with it. It was the 360 era. Everything had to be the hardest difficulty because games were getting too easy. Um and uh, but that that didn't really get much backing. I'd say the coolest thing we ever did there was my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, would review instruction manuals. There was a mm. retro game store. Yeah, there's a retro game store that was overpriced as hell. Um, and uh, should I try not to swear? No, I'll just uh, get no, that out okay. of the way. Come on, okay. you're fine. Okay. You're fine. <laughs> um, I tend to inadvertently sometimes, but. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, there was a, a retro game store, and it was like way overpriced when things were not overpriced. And th but they had this huge bin of instruction manuals that didn't have a home. They didn't have any games to sell with it. They just happened to have them. And it was 50 cents, take what you want. And so my wife would just go there, and I said – I grabbed her a couple to begin with. I grabbed her like Mortal Kombat on the Game Gear and like Super Mario Brothers, and then we did other stuff. Anyway, that was probably the most innovative thing because she would tell us weird plot points. Like I think in 2008, we were probably one of the first podcasts to mention that when you break blocks in Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, you're killing people. Um, oh. But uh, she noticed that in the instruction manual. She was like, the Mushroom Kingdom makes up the blocks in Super Mario World <laughs> Brothers. And so, oh, no, no, no. Okay. But yeah. So, um, but then I did this. Uh, I really got into retro. I really started getting nostalgic um, in 2011. Um, and Retronauts had ended. And at the end of it, Jeremy Parrish, um, as well as I think it was Chris Kohler had said, if you're interested in this stuff, don't let it end with us. Just keep going and do your own thing. So I made Gaming History 101, and we were GH 101. I somehow had not caught the fact that Kurt Collada's fabulous website, hg101.net, uh, Hardcore Gaming, existed, but made that website and uh, made that podcast and started doing retro stuff. Um, and uh, that got a lot of traction and um, pretty quick, actually. And then what was interesting was Retronauts decided to come out of retirement, something that I'll do 400 times uh, in podcasting. And, um, 
and we just kept our audience and just kept going. And so that ran for quite some time. GamingHistory101.com is still there. All the episodes are archived. We've lost a couple over the years. I think three or four um, before I was backing stuff up in multiple hard drives and whatnot. Um, so we just had a file that wouldn't play after a while. I don't know if you've ever had that before, but... Yeah. Learn from me, kids. Uh, after eight years, uh, random files on pen drives, uh, I don't even think they call them that anymore, USB flash drives, uh, won't run sometimes, Ooh, <laughs> and okay. you don't want that to be your only backup. Gotcha, gotcha. So, we have this thing called the cloud now. But yeah, anyway. whereas I, um, I actually, your Discord did a, uh, did a little adventure. I think it was back in late 2021, and everybody was just talking about how they discovered you. Um, and it was, uh, I was able to trace back that I started listening to you back in, I think it was 2012. Um, and I started working through your backlog. Oh, um, yeah. and actually I think I reached out to you once or twice. Uh, you and Jam were doing like Christmas specials at the time. I was trying to get in like an experience, but I, I couldn't get the email in on time. Um, but I, uh, I, yes. I also, uh, donated to, to back when you were doing those donate streams, like those crazy gaming donate streams. Um, yeah. but yeah, like I just, I really, I enjoyed your content. Um, Retronauts, I, either they had come back yet or they hadn't, I can't remember. Um, but like you were, you were a different type of, of podcast to them. Um, right. I came at it at a different angle. Yeah. It yeah. was, yeah. So, um, yeah. And then like, we just started talking, <laughs> developed a, a, um, a relationship and yeah, we've been friends ever since. Uh, we, we absolutely, just, yeah, you can find us talking about games all over the place in, uh, Fred's, uh, backlog and portfolio. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Hey, uh, thank you again for, uh, for joining. I do really appreciate it. But now we're going to we're going to shift into the main part of the show if you don't mind. So, uh this is the part that the audience has been waiting for even though they all wanted to know who you were. Uh <laughs> it's time to talk about your experience, Fred, because the new format is I've decided uh, we're going to try some interviews. Both uh, Stu and I spent the last 40 episodes talking about the games that we really like and what we learned from them. And so it makes a lot of sense to get other people's perspectives on the hobby, get other people's opinions and just explore some of those games that, that, that they play. Um, mm -hmm. I think there could be some real value in there. And I found that, uh, I mean, I've been listening to classic uh, podcasts of every different kind of format for a long time. People respond to, um, to experiences Right, there are people who love to know the specifics, but you yourself have done an excellent job of um, digging into both the benefit and the drawback of trying to get things data perfect when it comes to something like history. Oh um, yeah, and like just the pitfalls. There's always going to be a well actually moment that comes out of that, um, <laughs> and. That's not what we're here for, right? Like what I'm here for is I want to understand you, Fred Rojas, as a person, what was something interesting that like, like, what do you take out of gaming? What have you learned from it? And let's maybe dig into some examples, like some actual game examples. Um, sure. So that's what we're going to do. So here, just give me a second. I got to hydrate. Yeah, oh. actually, if I could make a quick comment. Um, mm hmm Two things that are kind of interesting uh, that I've learned over the years. One thing is I'm far more experimental with games than people probably 
realize because I've always been on like podcasts and whatnot. And this may be, if you've never done a podcast, it, it may seem like people are talking about everything they play, but it's actually quite far from the truth in my experience. You really try to vet the process. And so if I dick around with a game for a little while and it just doesn't work out and um, we'll probably get there later in, in this as you ask questions, but I, I'm, I'm, I learn a lot from the games that I only play for like 45 minutes and then bounce off of, right? Especially if it's a, if it's a newer game that's longer. Um, but so that's one thing about just stuff where I think there might be unique stuff that those who have heard me or even you like that. I, I talk with some of my friends a little bit more about what I play, but like as to what I, what I play with and what I don't talk about. So, um, but yes, and then the other thing is, yes, I learned that the more accurate you try to get, the more you burn yourselves <laughs> because you bring people who are trying to find inaccuracies out of the woodwork. Yeah. And such is the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, well, such is the internet in, uh, in 2022. 2022. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, it's okay. Uh, it's just, it's where we are. Um, all right. Well, here let's move into some of the uh, some of the questions. So before we get into um, into like specific games, uh, I'm I'm kind of interested in how you feel about your hobby as a whole. And so, mm-hmm. like, this is the hobby of gaming, but the hobby of gaming is more than just engaging with the software. Um, and you, more than most. Right. Um, really dive into the hardware aspects you don't have to go too deep into this if you don't want to but um for me what i'm interested uh to ask right now is what specifically do you like about gaming and why so right now i mean you could take a perspective of like what did little fred like when you first started but think about adult fred what does adult fred enjoy most about gaming so for me it is the ability to experience Either experience new things, and and to a large extent, I think what I mean by that is storytelling in things that couldn't exist in our world, which is probably an age-old gaming thing. Um, but there are two others, and I think it's the two others that often don't get discussed enough. And those are um, comfort stuff, like just doing stuff that feels good where I've got a big stupid grin on my face. Um, a perfect example of that is Vampire Saviors. Who isn't talking about that? little indie gem that's on steam for three bucks, but, uh, it's, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it just burns time. I'm not learning really anything important. It's, it's borderline clicker stuff, but it just makes me feel good after a long day. Um, and then, uh, I'd say the, the last one is, um, tests of tests. I like being tested, whether it be, intellectually, whether it be physically, whether it be, um, skill wise, I do like being tested. It's why I despise the Soulsborne games, but I keep coming back to get my butt handed to me on them. Um, nice. and I'll leave that surface level cause okay. that could be a whole long discussion. But anyway, those are the things I really come to. And then I think you touched on this a little bit, but a fourth thing that I'm definitely in this on is uh, fourth and fifth, I guess what we would say, hardware tinkering and software tinkering. I love the hell out of both. And I, it's very interesting that I need to usually rope myself in sometimes and go, you have dwelled on this thing that you're not going to engage with for so long. Maybe, maybe we don't. 
maybe we just walk away from it for now. Sure. Um, sure. Um, I think what one thing that I will mention that's interesting is I don't do it for a collector's perspective. Right. And I was actually um, – well, maybe we can circle back to that uh, or okay. we can talk about that right now. Like you have what I would argue is an impressive collection of functioning, playable hardware um, in, a new, in numerous formats. I know that you're debating whether you're going to keep your CRT collection because there is technology that is making that less necessary now. Um, but yeah, and again, I don't, I don't want to yeah. dive too deep into this, but like okay. you are a collector to play. Um, right. Like so you want to be able to play on original hardware, but you want to be able to use that hardware. You don't just want it sitting in a box. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so to briefly explain what that entails is everything I do is around the preservation of working electronics, which makes me kind of old school in that regard. Uh, and to clarify on what you said about the CRT thing, um, I have a collection of HD CRTs that I'm looking to get rid of, but my two SD CRTs that have component ends, the Sonys, those guys will never leave my collection. Um, but, uh, un unless they die, which is possible, but, um, but yes. And so what, what you're probably aware of, but just to, to harp on is like, I have a Sega Genesis that has been recapped. I have optical drive emulators, or basically think of them as hardware that replaces disc drives in just about every piece of hardware I've got, um, unless it unless this, the hardware allows me to install. So, for example, I don't have that in a 360 because a 360 lets you install games. But a PS3 doesn't. So I've found a way to soft mod to, to get around that. But then with, um, yeah, you can't put your, I see you thinking, you can't just drop Metal Gear Solid 4 disc format into a PS3 and, and install it. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. I, I don't, I was thinking, I was thinking of a 360, right? I was thinking of 360. Okay. I'm like, I've downloaded games on the 360. Um, and you can download them, but yeah, you can pop any disc into a 360 retail disc yeah. and then install it. And so that it oh, doesn't have okay. to read your drive. Understood. Yeah. I understand now. Got it. So. Yeah, and then um, and then for the the software that doesn't do that, such as like the Panasonic 3DO, mm -hmm. there's a gem. Um, and what's also interesting about me that uh, people assume, because uh, I've got some videos on how I installed some of these things, they're mostly solderless. I try to stay away from solderless. Um, is they think that I Frankenstein this stuff? No, I tell them I actually have a video of me taking it apart. So now I've got a video of how to put it back together. And I will tell you that the actual disk drives in every piece of hardware I've ever replaced do still sit in static, anti-static bags in my closet, untouched, able to be reinstalled. Would they? No. Actually, half the time I've replaced things that don't work anymore. Uh, yeah. um, but they could be. Um, and uh, I do also keep, just because I'm that crazy, um, and mind you, I bought these before the bubble, the retro bubble. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind, a lot of what I did was just luck of the retro bubble. And so a perfect example of that is... I not only have a solution for the Sega CD where I don't need to use it, yeah. I also have a Sega CD2 that is working. I also have a 1, but that's because I'm obsessed with hardware of the Sega CD. But like my 3DO, I have a 3DO that has a working disk drive, and then I have a 3DO that has an optical drive. <laughs> to have two of things can be pretty ridiculous. 
Um, but yeah, again, I just want to be able to use it no matter what. And then I mentioned recapping. That's a term of replacing the capacitors. Mm-hmm. This is something a lot of people don't talk about, and so I want to mention it. There are very few pieces of retro hardware that actually need this. Um, People tend to jump on it because they they can. And if you're good at soldering and you want a project, sure, go right ahead. Um, But, like, whereas, like, the TurboGrafx-16 or PC Engine definitely do it. Sega Genesis, and I won't get into it because you can Google this stuff. But, like a Super NES... Traditionally doesn't need recaps. Nintendo used really high quality capacitors. I've never recapped either of my SNESs, and okay. I've never needed to. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there just for a second because sure. there's there's a question that that begs asking. Um, and I mean I know the answer, uh, but I just mm-hmm. I want you to say it for our audience. Sure. How did you learn to do these things, and what resources did you did you use to to execute. Sure. So I was actually really scared of all this stuff at the beginning. Um, And actually, I don't know if you even know this part of the story, but um, I work in a laboratory. I'm on laboratory information systems, LIS, but because we are a direct, well, we are the, the for-profit, no, the non-for-profit after effect of a state run hospital. Um, there's a lot of jack of all trades and some of my coworkers have been working at the hospital since it was state run in the seventies. Um, so because of that, they wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have to be partial hardware admins. Mm -hmm. So not only do I have to know how to make, let's say a DXH 800 or DX 800 talk to, um, which is a, an instrument, a chemist, uh, sorry, a hematology instrument. Not only do I have to have it, like, talk to the, the, the electronic medical – the software and, and drop it into your chart when we run the test, but if it breaks or if it's having trouble or various things like that, we can call the vendor to come out and look at it. But while we're waiting, which could take days, um, we try to troubleshoot ourselves. So our first line of defense is to troubleshoot. And I'll never forget the day that I changed with my coworker. We changed an entire board. Because they couldn't get someone out on a flight to come and fix the board. Out on a flight. And they said... That would be so expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they do. Beckman is uh, one of our vendors, and they're they're very known in the, the lab world. But they were like, we, we'll have a guy out there. You know, I'll, I'll pick a name. We'll have Jerry out there. He'll be there on Monday. Mm-hmm. But it's Thursday. So what if we overnighted you the board, and we walked you through it on the phone, and we taught you how to replace the board in one of these instruments, and if you screw it up, who cares? Because Jerry's coming on Monday. Right. Gotcha. And we replaced it, and it worked. And then I remember I... Yeah, then the next task nice. was they had me replace a blade on a Linux server. Oh. And I was like... blade? Oh, sorry. So it's it's just a big portion of the server that's like a board. Oh, okay. And so I don't know what the actual functionality is, but to, to visualize it, think of like replacing a PCB board in like a JAMA harness on an arcade or okay. something. Yeah, like for anyone who's never seen a server, like a server board, because I realize some people just have never seen them. It's like mm-hmm. imagine, um, imagine a PC, so like a, a um, desktop, that is longer and wider, sometimes about the size of a small desk um, that goes yes. into a rack. Um, yeah, and, and now that we're talking, I realize 
I'm not a hardware like a hardware guy by trade, like in yeah. in my job. Yeah. And so we may be using just loose terms that are not industry standard. Right. So right. there's probably someone out there who does work servers, and they're like, "What is he talking <laughs> yeah. about?" Yeah. Well, yeah, no one right. calls them a blade, but I call them that because I'm an Xbox gamer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, uh, I'm friends with someone who uh, who went to school for ComSci, and one time uh, <laughs> he took us to his his server closet, which was a closet in Toronto, Ontario. Um, it was just a, a facility that was just servers, so like servers for everyone. You could it, uh, you, like now you can like, like rent a servers from from Amazon or whatever, right? Like you you maybe never drive and see them, um, but. <laughs> back when you still needed like a physical place to store things and you could go in and access your server, um, without having to use the cloud. Um, like we went there, it was just so weird. Cause it's like this really hot environment, even mm-hmm. though there's like decent ventilation. Um, but it was just racks and racks and racks of servers. And there were like, um, four or five units that were all beeping. And I'm just like, like what is that and it's just like oh that's just the uh, backup batteries dying on um our major oh yeah and it was a major telecoms communication company that like oh. is like one of the monopolistic telecom communication companies and the in ups Canada. is like, going out yeah <laughs> those uh those alarms have been going for four years nobody's come to fix them <laughs> so we actually so replaced funny. the lead acid batteries that were in some of our UPSs. Okay. But anyway, so it's just weird stuff like that and so when when i started doing a couple of things like that or just you know, kicking the tires on a special chem instrument and got it working, you start to get advantageous. So the first thing was, can I mod stuff that's solderless, right? And so I started disassembling, and the internet, as you know, is full of, if there's one group, aside from the reputation retro enthusiasts rightfully have of being really snarky, well, actually, people, um, the, sorry about that sound. I had to reattach something. Um, it's all good. The other thing they are is super helpful and document, like, to, at documenting things. And so there is a teardown of every console with step-by-step pictures of each and every step. And there's probably videos now of teardowns yes, of everything yep. that, you, <laughs> that, that, like, you can figure this stuff out. So I started toying with that stuff. And I remember uh, early on was like replacing the laser lens to a PS2. So you can really screw that up, but mm-hmm. you can also fix it. Yep. Um, I remember fixing my Sega CD1. And everybody was like, oh, it's probably your belt, which you're going to have problems with. And then it wasn't the belt. It was like a gear or something. And I fixed that. And they were like, oh, cool. Right? And then um, I got into soldering, which I still don't do a lot of soldering. But I can do some soldering. And I've modded uh, – I remember I modded a Game Boy. I put like a, a fun little backlight on there or something. Yeah. Yeah, something no, – well, remember cool. when yeah. – when nearly broken Game Boys used to be really cheap, yeah, they used to be like I used to buy a box of them for like fifty bucks. You'd get like ten of them that mm-hmm. that had something wrong with them. Yeah. And I just remember replacing like speakers and repairing stuff like that. I recapped an entire Game Gear. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And the the way I did that was really I just I watched some soldering videos and they were pretty helpful. They just tell you what not to do. They don't really try to teach you how to solder. And the concept of soldering. I don't know how much you know about it or, or, or the listener, but it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you just take a hot tip, you put it on a pad, which is on a, uh, a printed circuit board, and then you bring solder, which looks like just thin wire, to it. And it's so hot that it melts immediately, yep. just like the liquid metal terminator. And then when you pull your soldering iron away, 
it hardens immediately, like yep. instantly. Yep. And so that and so if you put a wire there and then you heat it up and then you put the solder in, which it's funny because everyone jokes about this, but you need three arms for that process. So you get inventive as to how you make that work. Um, <clears throat> but that's what soldering is. And you learn weird stuff like you pull the soldering iron way too fast and then things are soldered to your board that you never intended to like uh oh i don't know maybe like a piece of um uh of steel that you use to like clean the tip of your soldering iron Uh-oh. suddenly it's attached to your board yeah. so um so i i bought a mildly um higher end soldering iron but it was only like 40 bucks and i bet even nowadays it's only like 60 and it was like a knockoff of like a much fancier version um and it just had a temperature control that's what most people told me have an accurate temperature control and you'll be good um and then um bought a couple of those boards at a micro center where you just solder your own um you know world war ii siren and you solder some lights and and switches and stuff like that and then from there i just started doing consoles and i gotta be honest with you they're pretty straightforward they're Mm. made for mass manufacturing um there's a guy in our discord warren he can do soldering the way you see it in those crazy videos where he just run down a line and like solder a hundred points and like yeah yeah (laughs) he can do crazy stuff like that but i can't do that uh i'm still meticulous but i will say like i've never killed anything yet yeah, and 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 some of, some of the scariest ones, the two Ooh, like knock on wood, but right, the yeah. two scariest things were, but I always did it in low risk situations. Um, I have a optical drive emulator called the Sio P S I O, and it it goes into a PlayStation One. It is probably one of the least popular okay. for reasons we don't need to get into now. You yeah, guys can yeah. Google it if you want to see, but it plugs into the back port, the serial port of old PlayStation Ones, mm-hmm. and it runs the games off of it. But in order to get that to work, you have to cut some traces on the main PCB of the PlayStation 1 and then solder some reroutes. The good news is the disk drive still works. So, like, I can still put a disk into my PlayStation 1 and run it, but it also runs this optical drive emulator. But I had to cut some traces and solder that stuff. And if I screwed it up, it was kind of a good news, bad news situation. I broke a PlayStation that I didn't care about, but, I mean, you'll probably attest to this, Chase. How many... PlayStation 1s do you know that were, like, first gen that play discs no problem? I think I have a little bit of a rarity on my hands with that. Um, um, wow. Uh, like, near the end of the life of ours? I mean, we still had our original, but we hadn't booted it up in decades. And um, near the end of its lifespan, like, we just played everything on the PS2 because we had the PS2 backwards compat, right? Good point. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, like those, yeah, I I'm not trying to shit on the PlayStation the PlayStation One, um, but it was it was for what it was, <laughs> like it was also like it was number one, not the most expensive piece of hardware, and that was Correct. the intent. Yeah. Um, yeah, and number two, uh, very easy to replace it. Like you could just go buy another one. Um, yes, PlayStation 1s and Genesis are probably the two consoles in America or probably North America that you can still find relatively cheap. I, I was taken aback that a running Genesis is now more like 70 bucks because yeah. they used to – at retro game shows, they used to be in bins where you could buy like a – it was like 10 bucks a piece or like 10 for 50 bucks or something or 10 for 70. Like that was how I got my early ones. Um, but anyway, yeah, I had an SCH, uh, I think it's a 5001 model. So it's not the first gens, but it's still the parallel port on the back. 
and it runs discs like a dream. No turning upside down, no doing anything. You put a, a good disc in there, and it just runs it. Um, nobody had done the swap trick on this one. And if, I'll tell you from looking at the build of these things, Sony actually made the PlayStation 1 to be pretty tank-like. In all regards, even the plastic on the outside. Okay. Yeah. It, in all regards, other than that disk drive, they really skimped on that disk okay, drive. Yeah. It's a one-time disk drive, and it's a low-quality one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, <clears throat> I digress. Um, so I just started j- jacking around with it, and I got real into it. Um, and I, I will say I've kind of tapered off a little bit from the tinkering. Okay. You, uh, you, you deck something out well enough, and, um, you know, kind of like the Game Boy, and you're like... Yeah, you only have to... Do it once, right? Well, well, I'm, yeah, and I. Sorry, I was. I like installed the. Oh, sorry. No, I was. I was no. going to say, like, if it's if it's for functionality, right? Like, if it's for you, it's it's to play games because you know you can't use the disc drive anymore. Um, some right. of the solutions you've you've chosen, you only have to do it once. Right. right? Most of the time, yeah, I like things that I only have to screw do something once. up. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, also. Um, like I can appreciate working on the Game Boys for practice or or whatever reason you were doing, but I'll let you continue. Sorry. Oh sure. For the record, I've never cannibalized a Game Boy, meaning ripped it apart and used it for parts. Um, I did my first one and screwed it up. When you are working on the Game Boy screen, there's a very thin piece of ribbon cable that likes to pull away very easily. In fact, it can break and pull away on still assembled Game Boys. And so I did damage that one. And then um, I put on Craigslist that I wanted it to go to a home of somebody who knows how to fix it. And the guy did. And believe it or not, this is, again, a nicer internet. This was probably five years ago. The guy sent me a picture of that Game Boy working later at a later date. Nice. Very nice. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the second time I got it working. And so uh, the, the three mods I did to it was um, – so I took a normal screen. And you do the bivert mod. I guess the Game Boy looks better when the parts that are supposed to be off are on. And the parts that are supposed to be on are off. And so, believe it or not, you install what's called a bivert mod, which literally reverses the visuals. Okay. But then it uses this clever piece of, like, photo lens or something to revert the colors back. So, it's making all the clear stuff colored and all the colored stuff clear. And then you're using, like, an overlay to make them appear like they're supposed to on the Game Boy. So, you don't have, like, a negative version of everything. Okay. Cool. Um Weird, it's kind of weird, yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> and then I installed a backlight behind that. Sure, of course. So, so I had this cool, like, orange, like Michelangelo's headband orange backlight on this biverted, beautiful, high-definition Game Boy. And I've played maybe three hours of it in the last five years since I did it. And I was like, this was a waste of hardware. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I but, know, like, every now and again we'll talk about, oh, you know, there's some really good games on Game Boy. But it's, I don't know, it's a generation that's hard to go back to. It's kind of like going back to uh, NES. Um, it's fun for a little bit until it isn't. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, but what's interesting for me, and I think you and I have talked about this, I my bigger issue with Game Boy and anything like it is I don't like portable consoles. I don't think I yes. li- I don't even think I like laptops much. Oh, that's uh I think I'm that sh- anti portable and I'm not even anti it. Yeah, like I'm not dogging on it. Yeah. I've just tried so hard to get into things like I have a Vita and my PlayStation TV, which is the Vita consoleized version. 
I play so much more. Um, my PSP, shoot, if that thing didn't, I have the component cables for it, if, and I have the special Sony 3D TV that makes it full screen. Yeah. If I didn't have that, I probably would never boot up my PSP. My PSP screen has never been on. Yeah. It's always connected to a TV. So I, I, that's something weird about me. And I had a Game Boy growing up, but, like, I just... I don't think that's weird. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I spent, I'd say, the better part of 2016, 2017 trying to figure out the most ideal way to play Game Boy Advance games on the television. <laughs> um, and it's because and that... I didn't, like, I didn't want to play on a handheld. I had handhelds that could do it. Um, uh-huh. But... Um, like I say, I wanted to play Game Boy Advance. Like some of the Final Fantasies, they were getting up there in price because, especially that time period, things were starting to bubble. Like now, everything is just. I can um, only but, imagine what Final Fantasy V Advance is worth. Yeah, um, but, but anyway, at, at the time, like I was just trying to figure it out, and I actually found a few ways, but none of them looked great. Um, whereas now, uh, especially with. I mean, the the thing we haven't discussed yet is emulation, and someday um, I will more than happily explain exactly how I do it, but um, I have three or four different ways. Uh, I mean, aside from just the regular laptop, I have three or four different ways mm-hmm. to play really decent quality uh, visual representations on a television, um, and it's and just it's- through easy modding uh, specific devices. Well, it's interesting. Yes, and and you've you have opened my eyes to that stuff. Um, what's interesting to me is Game Boy Advance is literally everyone's. That was the system where I wanted the portable to be the non-portable. Mm-hmm. In our in our Discord, we talk about this a lot too. Everyone's always looking for a good way to get GBA games on a TV, and um, while. Some people might jump to, just as a quick side note, some people might jump to, um, obviously, the Game Boy Player on the GameCube, and especially if you use the Swiss software to do the Game Boy interface as opposed to that disc, I have both, and trust me, you want to do the Swiss software and Game Boy interface, Um, that's a cool way to play on a CRT. Uh, You can use a Wii U and play it on lots of stuff, and the emulation is relatively good. One thing that's interesting that I noticed, though is a CRT is not the original look of a Game Boy Advance. Yep. And so, because it was that, that like, kind of grid-based LCD screen on those mm-hmm. cheap LCDs they put in them, um, CRTs look cool, but they don't look right because they never really had scan lines on a Game Boy Advance. You don't recall if you played it. And I had a Game Boy Advance growing up. It was one of the few portable consoles I was in Chicago at the time. I got a lot of time in. Um, yeah, that's not what it looks like. Like, it looks cool, but it doesn't look right. And the same thing's true on an LCD. And so um, some of your solutions may have this, but these shadow masks I talked about, yeah. um, obviously the Mister is one of them, but software has been doing it for a long time. Um, they've got those cool new Game Boy Advance shadow masks. So actually, if you have the right mask, it can make, it makes basically, you know, that kind of like, I guess I would call it the screen door effect, the kind of screen door effect that the block-by-block nature of the Game Boy Advance had. And to me, that looks super cool yeah. on yeah. on, on HD, HD screens. Yeah. It's, so. um, what's interesting uh, is uh, the community now, like, they, they understand what aspect ratio um, something needs to be. So when it emulates, it emulates, and then there'll be bezels, right? So either top, bottom, right. or side. Um, and then it's it just ratios to that, regardless of the size of the screen. So sometimes you can get 
some very like if you have a big TV, you can get some incredibly blown out um pix, pixel oh, yeah. like you because of the quality of the TVs that we have. Um but if you know how to fine tune it and manipulate it, um most emulation software does have a way to um to sort of massage that so that it's more palatable. Um because I did uh I ble- I own the Retron five. Uh it was the Retron oh, okay. five, right? That would like rip hyperkin one yeah mm-hmm. that would rip the file rip the rom and stick it onto the device and then emulate it um yeah. and that did an okay job uh but it still looked a little bit strange um so there there's still some stuff that needs to happen in the back end that that things like an emulator really help with if that is the solution you want i mean the other option that i appreciate now that i have it is a modded 3ds um and okay. that yeah, was just that was a soft that was a soft jailbreak. The only additional piece of hardware I needed was an SD card. Um, yeah. So. Well, and to give you an idea as to why that happens, um, not to get too nerdy, but it's yep. the difference between scaling and integer scaling. So most things like to go the full height of uh, nowadays most emulators or even the Mister likes to go the full height of the screen, and um, because. I, I have no um, honest uh, uh, conclusion to draw other than this. Everyone who made video game hardware just wanted to screw with us and make things as hard as possible. <laughs> yeah. So you get things yeah. like the NES, which is not 4x3. It's not square pixels. And the SNES was very much the same way. And it's weird stuff. Like it's like 16 by 17 or various things like that. There's all these weird aspect ratios. So if you integer scale... The good news is you get the pixels to be the way they're supposed to be, and you definitely don't get any of that. Anyone who's dealt with emulation has done has seen the shimmer effect when they're uneven. Um, but uh, but it, it it doesn't fill out the whole screen, right? And so it's funny because sometimes you'll have like this box floating in the middle of like a sea of black <laughs> on a screen. Yeah. Um, and then, so to some, the height stretching and non-integer scaling is a sin, Yeah. right? And then I bet you feel this way, but one of my favorite things to do to people is every time I'm about to set up something, is to stretch it to full screen so it's it's just yeah, blown it out, so no strange. aspect ratio care. Yeah, it looks so strange. <laughs> uh, and I've seen it. And any and, retro oh, enthusiast freaks out because so Simon strange. Belmont's four times as wide as he's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and like to to bring it all back to try and get back to the core of the show. Sure. Um everything I learned when it came to emulation and when it came to like these fine tuning and adjustment sort of moments I found online and it's just this incredible community. Right? Like we've talked about the good and we've talked a little bit about the bad, but like the one thing I can say about the retro community is they are um, they're thorough and they can be accommodating in text, which is to say like the documented history of how to do a thing is usually very approachable and very close to idiot proof. Um, and so it's, it's, it's like making, um, it's, it's more like, um, cooking than it is like baking because there's not a lot of chemistry involved unless you're like, if you're hard modding, like you, you do, that is sort of like the baking <laughs> of, I of, do um, get what of retro saying, gaming yes. whereas like uh when it's soft modding when it's just okay get a few programs onto an sd card put the sd card in the device um 
that is some of the easiest stuff you will ever do. Um, well, it's more like cooking, right? You can wing it, and if the yeah. recipe doesn't work out, you just try again. Yes, exactly. Um, and especially some of the devices that I've modded, like uh, it is, it's getting harder and harder to brick stuff. <laughs> which yeah. is, which, and when I say brick, well, I mean cause... kill the device. Well, because one of the first things they do nowadays is, is they up. they back it up. So yeah. they're like, okay, let's flash your whatever. Nand is the easiest example, but like, let's flash your stuff so that if you brick this, yeah, you can we can recover it, it, it and you set a back standard. door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, uh, you know what? I think what we'll do is um, like I feel like that was a very good conversation, but I want to move into other other parts of the show. Um, sure. I want to talk about some of your first games, Fred. Um, if you can remember, not everybody oh, uh, responds well to this, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested to know. So can you remember the first video game you ever played? Yes, I can. And okay. it was Jumpman. Okay. Cool. Epics do you, on the do you Commodore wanna, 64. Yeah. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. Okay. Go right <clears> ahead. <throat> Just, uh, tell me what the experience was like. Sure. So I remember it was 19. This is where it's going to be tough. Okay. I want to say it was 1985, okay. which would have put me as three, really young. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember my dad, we had a Zenith, and it was one of those, uh, for, for people who grew up in the 80s, it was a Zenith TV. So first of all, that was still around. And second of all, it was the ones that was built into the cabinet. TVs used to be furniture first mm-hmm. and TVs second. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had the huge Zenith. Um, and I remember my dad brought this gray brown actually brownish keyboard and he hooked it up to the back with these two prongs and i'm I'm doing like a v-shape with my fingers oh wait people this is on camera yeah, but he had these well, two like we'll, we'll prongs like this as well, but yeah. and he'd hook that to the back and he <laughs> would screw it in and anyway um and then he turned it on and it it just it just said ready with this blinking blue cursor i'll never forget that and um i was like what is this and my dad's like it's a computer and he goes, I can build stuff with it. And I remember he spent like an hour reading a magazine and he was typing in the basic commands, right? And then he would run it. And it ran yes. something. I don't even remember what it was. I remember him running something. And he was so fascinated that it worked because he had cussed a couple of times. Um, I think he was still drinking beer a lot. My dad always drank beer, but I think he was drinking beer even like back then sure. a lot. And I just, I think I remember him having me like, Go get him another Bud Light or a Budweiser probably back then. And I remember him cursing every time he would get to the end of the program and it wouldn't run. Okay, um, sure. Any any Commodore kids, any basic programmers will know what I'm talking about yeah. here. Anyway, um, and then – so I had kind of known it was there, but he wouldn't let me touch it. And he wouldn't let me play around with it, which is really funny because in hindsight, it's just RAM. Right? Like, I couldn't have heard anything. You just turn the thing off and it forgets yeah. everything. So. It's, yeah, it's, it's not like you have access to, uh, like, the deep executables that make the thing turn on. Yeah. Like, no, like, we had no ROM burner. Yeah. We had no tape drive yet. We had no disk drive. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. Yes, yes. So, oh. I remember my dad coming home and he was really excited one day. And he was like, Freddie, I got something for you. And he comes over and he shows me the tape drive. And so if you haven't seen this, this is an audio tape drive Mm -hmm. that would hook up with a serial connection, or maybe it was a parallel, I don't know. It was a lot of pins into the back of the Commodore, and then he brought out Jumpman, and it showed this dude who straight up looked like, I don't know, um, 
kind of like Duke Nukem, actually, but like thinner and less cocky. And he was like jumping on beams of light. So it was kind of like, imagine if Duke Nukem, the, his thinner, nicer <laughs> Mr. Rogers' brother, yeah. had ended up in the Tron world. Okay. Is basically what the cover looked like. Yeah. And it was by this company, Epix, E-P-Y-X. And I remember my dad telling me that he was – my dad was furious about this. Um, he was like, I, that's not how you spell epics. I don't – I remember him saying that. It's and I remember – cool though, Fred. Right. <laughs> and I remember he pulled out a cassette tape and he was like, we're going to put this in here and it's going to make a game. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. And then he put the tape in and he put it down and he typed a couple of things and he pressed play. And we waited for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had to flip the side once. Yep. And we waited and waited and waited. And then I remember him getting upset because he couldn't figure it out one night. I think the first night he couldn't figure it out. And I remember the next night he came and he had taken – we had a typewriter in the house. Yeah. He had typed up instructions that he then put in the box. And when I lost Jumpman, which I have unfortunately lost to time, mm-hmm. somewhere in there his typed – you know, um, typewriter instructions are in yeah. there on probably a piece of aging That's paper so like in the Goonies. Yep, yep. Um, but Jumpman showed up. And if you've ever played this game, and I'll, you guys can go look it up. I'm not going to get too deep into it. But if you go look it up, it has a very distinct sound because the Commodore 64 didn't have much sound. And so it's the pitter-patter of his feet. And then his little da-da-da-da when he jumps. Mm-hmm. And um, and then there are literal bullets that float out while you're trying to platform this wow. stuff. And when you cross their path, like think of them as working linearly. So they move across the screen left to right or mm-hmm. right to left. And when they see you, they dash vertically down to where you are. And it makes like a mm-hmm. bullet sound. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the three distinct sounds you will hear is constantly, like if I heard it nowadays, I'd be able to identify it even without seeing it. The pitter-patter of his, of his feet and the jumps of Jumpman and then the random sounds of these bullets gunning you down. And it's just so fantastic. And then every time you got a game over, just like today, we've come full circle. You had to, you had to wait for it to load again. Uh, not the full 10 minutes because it had some of it in RAM. Yeah. But it had to still load for like 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> Great. Yeah, so there was, there was that one. And then the last one, and there's not much to tell here, was also the edutainment title, Kids on Keys. Okay. This one plugged in like a cartridge, so it instantly loaded. Mm-hmm. So there were some times where I just didn't have patience for Jumpman. To wait for it. And I was like, oh, I'll play Kids on Keys because it instantly loads. And that was very useful and very progressive in that time because I started playing it a lot in when I was four in 86. Mm -hmm. And um, it made me naturally good at the keyboard. Nice. Because in order to get good at Kids on Keys, what happened was the letters would fall and you had to type them. And they would strategically, as time went on, make it so that if you're not holding it like typewriter style. Yeah. You you couldn't look at the screen, and you had to have your your hands in a certain place. Yeah. We would know it as keyboard style, but it was probably slightly modified because I think the Commodore sixty four didn't have the exact same keyboard as we do now. Okay, so but it, did it have a home row or no? Do you it, know what I mean when I say home row? Like the, it's yeah the, the it's where your your fingers kind of like yeah, rest. Yeah. Um, and I want to say it did. Okay. 
Um, I don't remember there being any notches on the Commodore 64 keyboard. I might be misremembering that. Okay. Like to where your middle finger was supposed to go on the home yeah. row. Yeah. But one way or the other, in order to get good at kids on keys, you had to be able to type it without looking at it. And so it became a fun little game for me was how far could I get without looking at it. So naturally, later on in time, that made things – because typing became a big deal in schools in the 90s. Oh, yeah, but just, like, you're going to so have to funny. learn to use these keys, kids, these um, computers. It's funny because we've sort of come full circle where um, I don't – and this is just my ignorance. I'm not sure that typing is still taught in school. Like is, is Autumn learning typing in school? don't believe she is she has computer lab days but i don't believe they do typing yeah i i do not believe that uh typing is prioritized which is weird because it like we all do still engage with keyboards mm-hmm. <laughs> like, very much so. um yeah I, I maybe it's just because of the shift towards uh towards cell phones i don't know um but it, it's this weird skill that like phased in and then phased out but it's still useful to everyone um and my my first experience with it was uh i think it was a uh, math blaster uh so it was um i'm trying to remember what device i played it on but you needed a keyboard to play it and you were basically solving um equations up at the top and if you didn't solve it then the numbers would shoot down um and every time you got the answer right it would shoot up and destroy destroy the equation um at least lots that's... of death and shooting in our early video yeah. games like that was the that was always <laughs> But um, to to bring it back, like number one, uh, learning learning fundamentals for typing that early is super cool, and the fact that you enjoyed it, uh, number one, um, so scarcity mm-hmm. <laughs> resulted in oh, that. Yeah. But like it's it's awesome. Yes, very much so because yeah. those were the two games I had on the Commodore. Yeah. Um. But uh. Yeah. Number two, and I'm gonna sort of leave this one up to you. Um. Do you feel like there was anything additionally that you learned, uh, maybe from Jumpman in particular? Uh, either yeah, the process so, of um, of loading it or playing it. So I did remember instructions because if you didn't load Jumpman per my dad's instructions, oh, and my dad being my dad, uh, no one knows him, so you won't know this, but mm-hmm. this will tell you a lot about the man. He then would not keep the Jumpman user manual in the box <laughs> because his instructions were better, and he wanted to make oh, sure that if I wow. tried to do it myself – I would follow his instructions. And mm-hmm. if you didn't follow his instructions to the letter, Jumpman didn't load. Um, and his instructions had lots of fun stuff, too. My my dad didn't know how to write emails before people didn't know how to write emails. Because yeah. there's this part with three stars and all caps that says, Do not ever push that record button. And I remember my dad going, Why did they... Why did they do that? And I remember him pulling the tabs. Oh, no. The tabs were pulled on Jumpman, mm-hmm. actually, on all those cassettes. So I don't know why he even cared. It wouldn't let it record anyway. But, boy, he was definitely – he was certain his four-year-old son was going to screw this up. Well, and I mean, so if you had access to tape and a knowledge of how tapes work, you could just tape over the holes and then record over it. But That was three that years yet. later. Yeah, that, was, that was three years later um, when I was seen as a genius because I learned how to program the VCR. <laughs> Fun thing in the late 80s, if you knew how to program a VCR, you could run the world. Anyway. Yeah. But, but, uh, and so, yeah, I, it taught me a lot about instructions. Um, I tried to run, um, the basic game. Um, There was a submarine game that my dad told me about. He said it was really cool. And he tore the page out of the magazine and left it for me with the basic instructions. And I remember I was never able to get that 
run. I would always screw up basic just enough that it didn't run. There right. was some syntax I had missed, some character I had done wrong. Yeah. And so I remembered learning early on that there's such thing as a wall where you just don't get to enjoy this, yeah. which actually made things way lighter on me because there were other games on the NES era where you would get it, and within five minutes you were like, I'm not going to enjoy this. I'm never going to enjoy this. <laughs> but um, so it taught me that, mm-hmm. um, and it did teach me, I think, from that moment on, um, uh, the fascination of playing things on a TV. Oh, the last skill I wanted to tell you was joystick. Okay. So... For Jumpman, we did not use the keyboard. My dad got a joystick. Okay, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. And it was very similar to the Atari one, but Commodore had different versions, and I have no idea what the manufacturer was. But I remember it was like a flight stick one, so like a yoke more. It was like a full grippable thing, and you had to move it up and down and left and right. And it had the 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 action button. There was only one on Commodore, Mm -hmm. and I think that was true of most microcomputers. It was the thumb. So, you know, when, when Jumpman would jump, you had to do it with your thumb and, like, hit the top of the joystick. And so, but that was, I, I got to learn that kind of, like, using my hands, both hands, to control something on the screen. Manual dexterity. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Um, yeah. But it was a lot of, I can, you know, just the, that early fascination with, I can mechanically manipulate something in the real world that makes something happen in the virtual world. And that was very fascinating okay. to me. Um, so you hit on something earlier on. Uh, I started taking a few notes just because I, I thought it was interesting. Um, you said that you play games um, to test or to test yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And whenever I hear an answer like that, um, for me, uh, and this is just me having talked to people, having like worked through a bunch of games with Stu, um, that suggests you're an individual who enjoys practicing uh, for lack of a better term, resilience. Um, and this is something that I'm, I'm noticing is not uh, not as common, uh, or maybe I just haven't um, figured out a way to, to, to help my son with it yet. My son does not have the same level of resilience for video games that I did. And I'm not sure if it's because of the lack of scarcity um, and this is just like us, me creating a talking point right now. Um, but sure. like he will move away from a game if it gets too hard because there are other games he can play. Whereas I remember growing up, we had a finite number of games. If a game kicked your ass, you either kept playing it or you stopped playing, <laughs> right? Like depending if it was a rental yeah. or not. Um, oh Yeah. Like, it's just, it's it's interesting to me, because, like, I would like to see my son uh, tackle, uh, keeping in mind that at this point in my life, my son is five years old. He'll be six in September. Um, so he's got some time. <laughs> but, like. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I, I just, I, re- I, I remember I, I had a little bit more resilience, but I wonder if scarcity just forced that. Because now, it's- like, we're awash in games. Yeah, it's possible. First of all, I don't think games were as hard as people think they were. Um, the, the term Nintendo hard, I actually kind of reject. Um, although I, I, I don't, I reject the concept. The term is fine. Whatever you're saying, this is how I thought things used to be hard. Um, one of my favorite things, and you and I've talked about this before is this concept. Uh, you'll usually hear it from people who are older thirties, forties or older. 
and you'll usually hear from people who didn't have kids, is this theory that kids aren't as good at video games as adults. I, I disagree with that completely, but yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. They have the freshest set of nerves. They have the most acute um, uh, reaction times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that makes you uniquely skilled. <laughs> My daughter can uh, react so much faster than I can in video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so what I will say is... Um, you know, I, I guess I would say at that young age, I do remember walking away from games I thought were too hard. Um, and I was doing a lot of renting in the NES days. The, just so you know, the story will will turn into the NES um, after Commodore 64 because it's a real quick slide. 1986 was a huge year for me mm-hmm. where um, uh, my aunt got uh, – and I'll tell this real quick. But my aunt yep. got an Atari 2600. Mm-hmm. And she got the two games that everyone for an Atari 2600 VCS should get. Pac-Man and uh, E.T. I mean, how could those be bad games? Like, (laughs) So I played those and I did not like them. I did not like them at all. And Pac-Man blew me away more because I played Pac-Man at like... Or no, you know, I my dad never gave me the money to play it, and he was fine with it. He just never had gotten around to it. I mm. had seen Pac Man played in the arcades uh, at like restaurants and pizza joints, and like they were even in like McDonald's, and like I had seen people playing it, and I'm like, that's not what I'm playing at Aunt Di Di's house. Like that's not the same thing. And so I really didn't care for the 2600, the VCS. In fact, to this day, I still really don't. Um, but whatever. Like, and then. Shortly after that, that holiday season, I will go into Sears, and I was in Chicago, which was one of the earlier markets for the NES. Yeah. And I'll see Super Mario Brothers sitting at a single screen, and, you know, I've probably told this before, and I'm not the only one who said this, but when Mario starts walking to the right and you see smooth scrolling, both the Commodore and the Atari were single screen experiences. They didn't scroll horizontally. They couldn't do that Mm -hmm. well. And I realize nowadays there are ho- there are more modern developments that has the Commodore doing that, but it couldn't before. Um, and uh, and with the way the Atari races the beam, I'll leave that one open. You can study that yourself. Um, you can't really do it on the Atari. So that was huge for me on the Nintendo. But right. the NES wouldn't become affordable, nor would it enter our house until holiday 87. Um, all that said... Uh, yeah, I, I guess I would say that I was not as resilient. If a game really whooped my butt, I wouldn't really go for it. I don't think I ever beat, I think that was one of the earliest things I did with Gaming History 101 was beat Super Mario Brothers 1 because I'd never done it before. Right. Um, I, I didn't officially when I was younger, I didn't either. Um, I think the first Mario we ever beat was uh, Super Mario 2. See, and I've still never beaten 2. Okay. It was tough. We spent like... I think an entire Christmas break and then of a few weeks into either January or February trying to do it. Yeah, you'll hear Shane Mangod Bettenhausen being like, Oh yeah, I got it when I was you know, my birthday and I beat it that day and I mm. cried because I'm like, Man, not everybody had that yeah, experience. Not, no, most people cannot do I that. was <laughs> yeah, I was struggling on the uh the three headed hydra, mm-hmm. let alone getting to wart. Um yeah. but uh but yeah, um I got more resilient as time went on. And yeah. what's interesting uh, that I can tell you that you might want to watch with your son was Autumn, my daughter, was very much like that as well. And she got into Roblox 
um, and would play these really boring to me experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, She quickly grew into them herself, but I learned early on not to guide her. Yeah. Yep. Um, Sorry, let me rephrase that. Guiding is fine. Not to drive her. You don't want to lead her into a path. You want to ask her the kind of open-ended questions to help guide her without asking questions in a way that leads her to a certain answer. Right. Um, And so here is uh, we'll just like use our children as uh, as science experiments unfortunately sure. for a second yeah of course um just to dive into experience and then what i think we'll do is we'll shift into games you're playing now just because we are coming up on uh, almost 11:30 my time uh, just as a heads up for you um oh no, no i i'm good <laughs> yeah okay um that 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 hard stop i had um uh, disappeared with a text message so <laughs> okay there you go um <laughs> Something that I find really interesting, uh, and this is something that the more time I've thought about it, the more time I've um, engaged with my son um, mm-hmm. and actually experimented with it, the, there are some really valuable things that came away from the way that we used to play video games, um, which is take a turn, die, give it to the person beside you. They take a turn, die, give it back to you. And what that is, is that's iteration, but it's observing. So one one step is observing, the other step is executing. Um, I've I've incorporated a little bit of that with my son. So like my son will play, get stuck, he'll let me play, I I will help him past a certain point, but then I will like be hands off, or um, I'll be like, this is how you do it. (laughs) You'll hate me. I'll restart the level and I'll be like, now you know how to do it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Do you understand <laughs> what I did? And like, see if he will, like sometimes he gets pissed off at me when I do that, but it's because I want to see if he actually learned how to do it. And, um, this has bad results on something like, um, a, a Lego game <laughs> because mm-hmm. levels can actually be pretty long, but it has better results on things like, and things that you would never expect a kid to be playing, but like right now, yeah, kids are playing. Um, so like Smash, Headspace. Um, <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Yeah, so like Smash Brothers, which is the most approachable fighting game. Um, I'll do something, and if he oh, sees so me, you consider it a fighting game? Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Oh, no, okay. no yeah, like you keep the bias out of it. Like it is. A, it's a fighting game. It's just not in the I'm format kidding. that you like. Um, yeah. But it's interesting because what I I. I also like, I'll tell my son about things that I've done. Um, and so one thing I told my son is when I was training to learn how to be good at, at, uh, at smash, I would just turn on three other computers and set them to the highest difficulty and beat them. Um, and that's the exact same way. That's how I beat street fighter. Um, street fighter uh, Hmm. two is I would Mm -hmm. just keep dialing up the difficulty playing the computer and then you become the best person in your town. Not necessarily the best person in the world, (laughs) like, you know, like, um, depending on where you live, that's like, that's how you, unless you're Daigo. Yeah, that's true. That's how you learn the basics. (laughs) Um, and what he did, the, the, the lesson my son took away, um, Uh because in smash on the switch is you can set up teams. So what he does he sets up a bunch of folks on his team. We're talking a team of seven, and they are all level nine computers, the highest level, yes. super smart computers, yeah. against one level one bad guy. 
<laughs> Dad, if I'm going to win, I yeah, fail wins, to see the problem he here. He wins big. Um, yeah, see, he's thinking so, harder or smarter, not harder. Like, but it is so. <laughs> like for me, it's it's not about like watching him get better at Smash. I know that will happen eventually, right. um, and it will happen naturally, right? Because I never let him win. <laughs> but um, uh, and that rage will fuel him. Uh, but. Uh, Watching him engage in the UI, I think, is actually more impressive for me. Um, having him figure out how to activate computers because he saw me do it once. And how to queue up teams. Like, though, mm-hmm. that's a process that yes, will eventually transfer to all kinds of other, like, all kinds of other games, number one. So, like, it's, it's a useful stepping stone. Um, like almost a milestone because you engage with UIs all the time now. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, some it, better than others too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, oh, it's man. interesting, right? Like, um, I was yeah. actually more excited that he got better at using the UI than better at the game. Um, cause he's, he's, he's still getting there, but, uh, yeah, sorry. That was just my tangent. I don't know. What's fascinating to me was some of the stuff my daughter would do. Um, so she plays a lot of, like, I would say role-playing games, mm-hmm. um, but the less traditional version. So in Roblox, and, and she plays Roblox mostly because her, and Minecraft, because that's where her friends are. Lots of her friends, first of all, she's the only one on an Xbox, largely. She has one <laughs> other friend who has an Xbox now, yeah. and it's huge. Um and both of them are learning that girls on Xbox is a challenge. Um, but, uh, yeah, because we're delving into online. We won't talk about that tonight. But, yeah, yeah. that's been a fun world of fear. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what was interesting was she would play, like, um, Adopt Me, which is a very popular game. Anyone who has kids who are playing Roblox or plays Roblox themselves will know this. And my daughter always loved to play Minecraft. And I noticed she would randomly do things that her friends didn't like was switch it over to survival. Mm-hmm. She'd be like, I want to see how many nights I can make it. And so that was that little push you know, test. Yeah. And then there is this game. She showed her friends. They didn't really care for it, but she's really into it. And it's this game called Tower of Hell. And she still plays it a lot. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And this is just like the most mean, horrible, hates you, m- rude platforming challenges known to man okay yeah uh and i'm like i watched it and i was like autumn watching this it's a crash course in masochism it 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 was like an old nintendo game Mm -hmm. she'd jump on a platform and the platform would just disappear and they're like ha you died you suck you have to start all over and maybe next time you'll learn and she has over the last three years every now and again like on an afternoon she'll just switch over and for an hour play tower of hell and it's endless so you can't win it yeah and she just tries to see how high she can get and she'll do runs that it's kind of like run based almost to a certain extent she'll do like 10 12 14 minute runs and she'll be like oh i got to a level i've never gotten to before and stuff like that like a height that i've never gotten to because it's all vertical platforming so if you fall you don't necessarily die but you can fall all the way back to the beginning wow yeah it's, okay. yeah, yeah. it's this and it's not good i'm gonna say right off the bat it's not good but it's fascinating to me that she likes to just test herself like that, which her friends don't. Um, then again, on the flip side, with standard video games, like the Lego games she's played a little bit, and yeah. we tried her on retro stuff, and she really didn't like retro stuff. She, if she gets challenged there, she'll walk away. Mm-hmm. She really will. Mm-hmm. Um, the only one which she kept persisting on, and it was because I was there to encourage her, 
was we've been playing what has ended up being the longest game of my natural born life, which Uh-oh. is It Takes Two. Yeah. Never before has a game done so good at co-op mechanics and been so unnecessarily long than this game. <laughs> okay. um, and, uh, uh, and and again, you just have to leave it for like a month and then come back to it. But, sure. uh, but yeah, she does not get discouraged by the boss battles there because I'm like, nah, we got to keep going until we beat it. Otherwise, we can't have dinner. It's just the way it is, and and we do it. Um, and so she's kept persisting through. But again, um, that game is smart in that they don't let one person do it. You cannot just let your child or your parent beat a boss for you. Mm-hmm. It takes both people working in tandem, showing their skills, and so it's been useful. But yeah, it's it's oh, interesting with kids. Okay, and I will tell you that between five and ten, mm-hmm. my daughter with each year has exponentially grown in her ability and skills at games. That is at that five. Is it was very touch and go. Like, yeah. I am so fascinated to see where this goes because like my son will, <laughs> my son will watch me play some games. Now um, there are some games he refers to as bad games and I try not to play them like the, um, he doesn't like anything with blood in it, which is so wild to Ooh. me. <laughs> But it's also, like, it's okay. Like, that's his moral center right now. Um, and so, like, I'm definitely not pushing it on him, right? Like, I'm not going to force him to, <laughs> to watch me play again. But he will come and give me shit if I'm playing. And because I play retro games. So, like, I'm playing um, Gladius, mm. which is this ancient turn-based strategy game from LucasArts. And there's, like, pixelated bullshit for blood. Um, like, it is so ancient and bad. But because, like, you leave a puddle of red blood after you hit someone in the game, he's just like, this is a bad game. you got to stop playing. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, well, like, I, I can't see you play this. You you have to stop. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Um, My daughter never batted an eye at violence. Um, I think it's, I don't know. It's It's just... I don't know. He doesn't like the idea. Dude, of we're just getting... naturally violent people in my house. <laughs> we're know. Americans, yeah. right? Like he you're just, Canadian. He doesn't so. like the idea of people hurting each other. Um, even though he okay, loves... that I can get behind. But even though he loves doing it in some games, like in Minecraft, he is brutal. He will go massacre like a town of villagers. Um, well, they knew that. They knew what they 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 signed up for it. That's. <laughs> Uh, you know, or just like the same thing with Smash Brothers. They signed up for it. Um, like it, it's yeah, it's just it's interesting. It's interesting to see what he thinks is good or what he thinks is bad morally, and then it's interesting mm-hmm. to see what games he's gravitating towards. Um, and or like my my daughter, um, she hates when I ask her if she wants to watch a scary movie mm-hmm. or hear a scary story. She despises it. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then I'll come upstairs tonight because she's off of school tomorrow. I'll come upstairs and she'll be playing a scary game on Ro- <laughs> on Roblox when yeah, it's when yeah. no one's around. That's so okay. I don't know what it is. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, all right. Well, you know what? Let's uh, let's keep things moving. Um, I'm going to shift into the uh, what are you playing now part mm-hmm. of the the episode. So um, this is just going to let you know this is the last part. Then we go into closing, and then uh, and then we'll do the outro. But Right now, I just want to get a feel for for what you're playing. Uh, so why don't you tell me and everybody in the audience uh, some stuff you're playing, and then let's see if we can't dig some uh, some things sure. that you might be learning out of it. So um, my interests took a weird shift because of Final Fantasy VII Remake, which I've beaten now, um, and I've also completed the uh, DLC that's only on the PS5 version. Um, but uh, but yeah, I before then. 
I really was very into whatever was kind of zeitgeisty, whatever was the new hotness or getting caught up on old things. I've never really been much of a genre person per se, although I will say that I tend to not love Eastern RPGs. I really like Western RPGs. Take that with whatever stride. But uh, I played that one, really dug it after really not much caring for the post-Midgar portions of old Final Fantasy VII. Never beat that game. I would always get just past there and into the endless desert or whatever and just whatever, I'm done. Um, but uh, so with that, I've my my interests have kind of changed kind of drastically lately and I've been drawn into various other things. Um, so uh, more RPG style stuff. Um at this exact m- moment, um, and then I always like to do like a run-based kind of thing to mm. keep things light. And then I love B games, <laughs> B-tier games that are either on a budget or just batshit crazy. And so um, right now that trifecta comes. Oh, and then I've been on a weird kick. Sorry, I know I'm describing things without saying games, but I promise no, I'll get okay. there. Yeah. The other weird kick I've been on is I've always been, you know this, I've always been fascinated by visuals, tech, and, and stuff like that. So, um, I have been obsessed lately with playing only remastered versions of older games. And so I've lately been playing nothing but remasters of PS1 games. Hmm, So, yeah, I've done the, the Crash Trilogy. Yep. I'm now wrapping up the Spyro trilogy. Which right after that, I was, oh, sorry. Both solid. They're, they're popular in my house too. My, my son likes to play them as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, my daughter's – no. But they are 3D. She yeah. likes that at least. 2D, she's very against. Um, and after that, I do have plans to play through Tomb Raider Anniversary. Um, oh, okay. Because I cool. never could – and I've tried that once, but I played it on PC, and I didn't feel like the controller inputs translated very well for the keyboard and mouse inputs of that PC port. But I could be wrong. We'll find out. I'm playing the Xbox version when I do that. Okay. Um, but but anyway, and I've got plenty lined up. Resident Evil remake, uh, Tony Hawk. I've just I'm really on this PS1 kick. But I do those in moderation. Um, so okay. my my uh, my games right now are I'm playing the Mass Effect, Mass Effect Two. I have mm-hmm. the Legendary Edition, yeah. and I was not meshing well with Cyberpunk. Um, okay. I hadn't touched it until now, and I started it, and it was not what I expected. And we, you can decide whether or not we get into that. Okay. Um, but uh, Trees was like, my co-host was like, you know, I've been playing Mass Effect. I played Mass Effect 1, and I switched right into 2, and it's really hooking me. And I told him I would boot up that opening sequence in Mass Effect 2. And then, Chase, I blinked, and I'm... 15 hours in and half of my team assembled and they're all loyal. Wow. Um, wow. And so wow. that game, I mean, That's the so eyes funny. dilated and, and yeah. I was hooked. I have not played that game since um, it released. And I should point out, I was reviewing games at the time. Mm-hmm. And people talk about it a lot more now than they used to. But in 2009, playing a RPG like that for review was not like playing it leisurely on your own. Although <laughs> I am so addicted to it that I wouldn't say I was stressing on getting rushed through that game but um and then for run based stuff i'm currently playing zombie u with some occasional vampire saviors um, so okay. are you playing zombie u like on the wii u yes and nice. i've never played it before okay it's supposed um, to be a really great game yes and it is it's uh the, and the tablet is what kind of differentiates it whereas i bet those xbox and playstation ports they get rid of that so on the mm-hmm. tablet is your map at all times 
and you push the tablet in and you get a sonar, which tells you where things are. Oh, weird. Okay. And, yeah, and you manage your inventory, but everything's in real time. You cannot pause the game. So yeah. while you're looking down, just like in the real world, the world is happening. <laughs> Zombies and Yeah. Yes, and if they map all that to just your on-screen HUD for those other games, I, yeah, I, yeah, I can see the draw of that game going away. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, and it is run based. If you die, you respawn as a new person, and you have to redo the level, and you also have to recover your oh, backpack with wow. all your old. Blood. Okay, cool. And you have to kill your old self as a zombie. So it's oh, an interesting run based game. <laughs> yeah, very fun. Yeah, I remember I heard about that mechanic. Okay. So, um, anyway, so I've been doing that, and uh, I don't have a B game right now, but it's going to be Disaster Report Four. Hmm. It's installed on my PC, but I haven't booted it. You're, uh, so this is interesting because uh, <laughs> you are the second person I've interviewed. Um, with Stu, he had like um, two re- – I think he had two. And I was able to drill down and just um, kind of isolate things that you could learn. Um, we've got some options here. Uh, we, can, we can deep dive. If you want to talk about the one that you're really enjoying right now, we can deep dive nice into some of the elements and mechanics of it what you um what you like about it what draws you to it and then also like um what you feel you've learned from it if mm-hmm. if you can articulate that because if not i can like the more you talk about it the more i'll be able to probe and and sort of dig things out of it um yeah i think that might be best is there one game in that <laughs> that impressive list <laughs> of stuff that you're playing uh that you would like to dig into yeah, let's go with Mass Effect 2. Let's yeah, just do good it. Good call. Good call. Um, Makes it easy. <laughs> right. So um, how much of that game do you remember? Uh, I remember quite a bit, and I'll tell you why. I played the game pre-release, mm-hmm. and I that game ends. So I guess mild spoilers for Mass Effect 2. That game ends with a suicide run. Right. Anyone who dies in that suicide run dies permanently. Mm-hmm. The other thing was um, the game, if you bought it new, had some DLC. And it was weird DLC because it was Zaid, which was one of the characters. And he was just like an add-on character. And I forget if that went live like shortly after release or whatever. Anyway, the point was I got to play that before other people did and I didn't lose anyone on my suicide run and I also got to play content before other people did. Nice. Okay. Um, which was kind of fascinating for me. Yeah. Um, but that's why I remember it. Okay. What I will say muddies the water is I remember the first two hours and the last two hours and everything <laughs> in between. Um, I remembered the big sweeping stuff. Yeah. But I did not remember a lot of the nuance. That's interesting. And okay. And it's 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 definitely hitting hard and better. Oh. Sorry, I'm tightening this thing again. No, that's uh funny. the second time through cuz I'm like, "Oh my god, like um Here's how I'll say it. Uh when I played the game the first time, right, especially cuz I'm reviewing it, I got my notebook out, <laughs> I would write it on a piece of paper. Nowadays yeah. I'd use a one note, but yeah. Um oh. and I was writing stuff down on a piece of paper and any and all dialogue options one could possibly do for any reason whatsoever I would do. And it made the game kind of exhaustive. Um, There's also a mini game where you launch probes and I would probe every single planet and again, made it very exhaustive. The way I'm playing it now is the way I would say a traditional player, at least a traditional player like me would play it, 
where I'm only having conversations when I actually give a damn about what we're talking about right. or about this person's backstory. I met this one person and they're like, let me tell you all about my backstory. And I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> it's fine. It's Goodbye. Okay. Yeah. It's and okay. so there's that. I'm not digging into that. And yeah. then something that I just – I. And I'll say this is a milestone, and maybe this will help. Okay. Something that just blew me away this time through were two things I never noticed when I played it the first time. The first thing is that this game is an early example of the numbers go up and we take all choice away. Um, in the first Mass Effect, you are highly customized in how you rank up, mm-hmm. like your skill tree. You can remap it at any time. I think there's a penalty, but you can do it. You're constantly getting bombarded by guns that you buy, trade, and check stats on and things like that. You have to waver back and forth as to – I don't even think you can afford all the upgrades and you have to pick which ones you have active and stuff. They get rid of all of that in the second game. It's all streamlined so that the numbers just go up. When you unlock something, it is – passive and it's part of your person and the skill tree is dumb as a box of rocks and when you get an upgraded gun you can kind of switch back and forth but they don't show you stats why are we going to talk about stats okay all they do is change how the gun shoots Mm. and whichever one you like more is what it is and so there's a lot of math i'm sure going on behind the scenes but you're not privy to any of it whereas you were privy to all of it in the first yeah, game. Yeah, that would, that would bug me a lot. As someone who loves customization and, and, and crunch, so like gear crunch and inventory management, that would um, that would bug me. That would bug me a lot. You don't I, even see I've your, never played Mass Effect, still... just as a heads up. I've never played oh. the series. So, I mean, I don't care about the spoiler. I've never cared about spoilers. Um, but, uh, yeah, that would... But well, um, I don't even know that the suicide run is that much of a spoiler. Because they'd say it's a suicide run. But <laughs> I would say some people are like... You know, I think today's gamers are far less surprised that someone you would die for good. Yeah, yeah. But back then, the idea... Because they we they went into that one. It's kind of like Back to the Future 2. They went into it knowing... With the first one, they didn't know if they would get enough popularity to justify their trilogy. Sure. Now they know they're doing it. Yeah. Right? So... They went into it going, and I think it was part of the publicity, there's a suicide run. And if these people die, including Shepard, apparently, I didn't, my she- no, nobody died, right, in yeah, mine. Yeah. Um, that if they died, they weren't in the third game. Right. And you're just like, wow. I guess the Shepard one is actually easier, for those who have played it, to understand how they could navigate that. Yeah. Um, and it does suck how they actually handled it. Cause spoilers, if somebody dies, you just get a fill in version of the same person. They just have no history with you in the third game, which <laughs> was one of the first things funny. that people criticized yeah. about that third game uh, because they didn't like the write it. So it. that, yeah, it's like, yes, you lose the person, but you don't lose the person, but the person you have, it's kind of bullshit. Um, yeah. When you walk up to the altar, Rex is either there or Rex's stand in is there, but the, the, the events happen anyway. Yeah. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is in the second game, you've got your team and you guys disband because of events that happened at the beginning of that game. Mm-hmm. And so when you are going to assemble a team for your new assignment, you're like, we're going to get the band back together. And they, they give you all these great, well thought out written reasons why these people are not going, why you can't have your old team. Mm-hmm. And then you have to assemble a whole new team. And then... 
occasionally you'll cross paths with your old team and it'll be like bumping into an old ex where you guys never broke up. She just ghosted you and technically you're still together. Yeah. <laughs> and so I never caught all that nuance the first time. Yeah. I was just like, whatever. I'm Shepard and these are my new dirty dozen. This is this is it. Like that's, that's how yeah. it works. And so yeah, that's that's something I noticed the second time. So okay. anyway. Cool. Um Well, I mean, just listening to you, it sounded like the first time it was very much about like clicking or um like a report card. So like checking the boxes because you were it was more of a job, right? Even though you enjoyed it, it was still it was still more of a job. You wanted to see every angle. Um, and it was like the completionist, right? Cause if you're going to write a story or an article on something, you want to have as many angles as possible so you can report on it intelligently. Right. And that seemed like, right. Well, and, and I should point out like the video game purist thing. So yeah. my theory was if you're going to review this game, which this theory doesn't hold as much water anymore. Um, you have to 100% complete it. You don't have right. to just beat it. You have to see 100% of everything. And when I would run that past my editor, he was like, uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. If, if you're going to do know, that, yeah. you do that. Yeah. yeah. So, but, I mean, it makes you one of the most informed. Um, th- that's my opinion. Um, I've seen everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, you're exposed to everything. Um, what, what's interesting to me is, um, not remembering all of it, but it, I guess it depends on like the fever dream and the dash, like what your crunch was like. Um, but uh, whereas I want to this... say forty hours in probably nine days, but early twenties and yeah, no, okay. like no, I was mid twenties, so yeah, but married, no kids, so there yeah. was that. Um, whereas now I'm thinking, um, so like that that would be like um, task recognition and then completion, right? So that that that's what I get from that. Um, because my understanding of Mass Effect is controls are, how can I put this? I've watched people play Mass Effect. I haven't played it myself, so I can't speak to it. But my understanding of combat was it wasn't that complicated. There were strategic decisions you could make. There were abilities you could take and you could, you could upgrade or customize that would give you certain advantages or disadvantages. Plus you get to choose who's in your team. Um, and so we're talking about number two here. So that's, that's more relevant, like who's in your team and what they can do is more relevant than what you have on, um, is my understanding of it. To a certain extent, I got to say that was not the Bioware way without getting into their history. That was not what the people who adored KOTOR, uh, Knights of the Old Republic and Mm. who adored their other games of that ilk. Yeah. Came for. Okay. And by uh, the first Mass Effect felt a lot like. A more st- their concept of what a more mainlined version of that formula would be. Well, it was mostly and the choice thing, right? Like, wasn't that the selling point? Like, all of the decisions you could make and that's how they it. sold it. But their original combat was fascinating in the first game, and they've changed this in that Legendary Edition. But in the first game, if you had pinpoint accuracy, because it was like a third-person shooter interface, even if you had pinpoint accuracy with a sniper rifle it was still a dice roll as to whether or not it hit and that pissed a lot of mainstream gamers off right and so rng rng yes yes very much so to the point that i almost feel like original versions of mass effect you could see numbers go up when you hit but i don't know that that actually happened (laughs) um the other thing that was fascinating was your 
characters would only be as um, like combat would freeze when you would pick to have them do stuff. Okay. And they would only be as effective as you'd kind of let them be. Right. And so what challenged it, and I really blame, blames the wrong word for it, but I think it was really indicative of like what was popular at that time. So in the time of the halos and the gears of wars, Gamers had not, especially console gamers, and remember Mass Effect started life as a console exclusive. It came to PC later. Um, Gamers had never been subject to, uh, console gamers on the 360 especially, were never subject to when you pointed the crosshairs in the right spot and pulled the trigger, it didn't hit. Or when you hit three times in the head... It would do massive damage or no damage. And then you've got these people running around all the time, dying left and right because they're making stupid decisions because you won't babysit them. And this is something that I would say RPG PC gamers of the Bioware fandom in the early to mid-2000s ate up. And it came to console, and they still dug it. But see, they didn't like it because they wanted keyboard and mouse. They wanted it on PC. And they wanted that those old interfaces. They wanted kind of almost right. an MMO interface. Right, right. And then con- console gamers didn't really dig it. And so the reason I bring all that up is you get to Mass Effect 2, and they diluted the ever-loving shit out of it. Gotcha. It is as boring. These people will not die. They're extremely effective in combat. They do tons of stuff on their own. They do the smartest thing out there on their own. And you can run around, run around like a blubbering idiot... And sometimes do, like, the Leroy Jenkins into battle, and you'll be fine. And, yeah, and in the second one, there's no RNG. If you pull a trigger on a head, you do a ridiculous amount of crit every time. Okay, so then it becomes more about skill. It's uh, Right, so I refer to that as, like, skill shots, right? Um, Sure. So it it, turned it into Gears of War. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, Yeah, in which case, precision is more important. Uh, Was there auto-aim? Uh, there is a little bit of aim assist, but it's nothing more than standard Halo okay. fare. Okay. Just you're using a joypad. Yeah, know? that's interesting. Um, so like you've got incredibly, re- you've got incredibly um, competent uh, NPCs running behind you, um, but you do you die easy? Do you yeah. die easy? In yeah, that game? you die pretty easy. Okay. And there's no way to heal yourself mid combat. Hmm. There okay. is, but there isn't. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, there's <laughs> okay. there's there's no real yeah. You've basically got to live long enough. You have regenerating health, I guess, is what I'll say. But if you die, everyone dies. Mm-hmm. Whereas if your teammates get downed, you have this ability called unity, where you can bring them back to life, and eventually ramps up so much that everyone benefits. You not only bring you can bring a whole team back to life with full health and replenish your health and shields. Uh, and uh, so sometimes maybe it's um it's a tactic to just be like. Hey, Rex. <laughs> well, Rex isn't in that, this game, but whatever. Yeah. Miranda, just go out there and play around with the big boss man. <laughs> and then when she dies, everybody yeah. else comes back to life and yeah, they're great. So, cool. yeah. Um, so, but yeah, it's um, – but really combat is, is night and day okay. between the two games. Yep. And so I would say that if you were a big Bioware fan, you played this one you were like, What? It's just very good shooting. It's it's very well done. Hmm. So if you liked shooters and Bioware games, you were fine. You would just go, okay, this is a different game now. Okay. But if you liked real true blue RPGs where it was more about RNG 
and the the attacks, the minute to minute attacks were more of like autopilot. Yeah. Which was what Bioware did before. This probably didn't go over okay. as well. So then I'm, I'm actually going to focus things a little bit more. It sounds like for this game, like the major takeaways, um, and this is going to be something that we haven't talked about yet. Um, the one the one that we have talked about is, um, so like reflexes, like the, the regular stuff you get from a first person shooter. So like, um, um, like the manual dexterity of doing that, the muscle memory of understanding the process of combat. Um, so you you learn how to combat and how to do mm-hmm. combat, and then like just getting good at it. Um, so like that, you do that through repetition. I assume most people will improve over time, <laughs> and then you also get like those those special um, abilities that make it easier. Uh, the more powerful you are, and as you level up, level up, whatever that looks like in the game. Um, the the next thing that my understanding uh, that drew people was the story. So I guess my question, because I've never engaged with it, is number one, um, how engaging was the story and what was it doing at the time, right? Because representation in gaming is important. Um, What sort of things could you do in this game that would really draw people that they might experience or learn from? Like, what are the unique things that happened in this game? Like, we can go into spoiler territory if you want to. Because, like, what I want to know is... Is there something narratively in this game that people could learn from? Because that's, yes. that's so, what I believe people came to Bioware for. Yeah, and I, I'd say that's probably why it's what sticks the most. Because people could excuse the gameplay in the interest of the story because the story could be your carrot. Okay. Cool. So if you love the Bioware formula and you're like, what is this shooter I have to do now? You just threw it on easy and you did it for the story. And there is just as much, if not more so, story than anything else. And so why the story is compelling is first and foremost, I think the easiest analog is it's very much a Star Trek world. And I say that as a non Star Trek fan. Um, you've got all of these aliens. They're all dip. It's all diplomatic. Um, maybe it's not as much a Star Trek world as it is a hybrid between that and Star Wars. And the reason I say it is my understanding of Star Trek in the little experience I have is that world peace exists. But I guess there's no, not necessarily peace between, right? Like, it's a human peace exists, but it's not peace against all the aliens, right? Because Klingons, they fight them, and there's the Borg. Anyway, I don't know enough about Star Trek to no, speak it's, to it's it. Okay. I'm pissing like, off everybody. Uh, Star Trek is right. still a metaphor for contemporary politics. Uh, it's just okay. instead of other humans being a pain in the ass, they, uh, they, they've given it to aliens. Right. Okay. It's like the more militant conservative aliens are the Klingons. Um, the, the sort of like entire nation of KGB is the Romulans. Um, oh, okay. Like the space okay. capitalists are the Ferengi. Um, but also in, in some weird way, the Cardassians. Uh, yeah, sorry, we're, we're getting into it. Oh, the um, Kardashians are in it. Oh, or, no, uh, I knew I uh, no, no, God, what is their name? <laughs> but anyway, whatever. Uh, the, so, the blue dudes, the blue dudes with like key shapes or onk shapes on their heads. Um, I don't know anyway. if I'm familiar with these. Anyway, so um, hmm. <laughs> Mass Effect kind of introduces you to this same stuff. There's the Asari, the blue girls, uh, actually. They're all female, but it's because they possess – they're like hybrids, but they all look very feminine. 
Um, and you get the Solarians who look like the big traditional aliens with the big bug heads and the, and the big eyes and everything. And they're very intellectual. You know, like I said, it's kind of like you said, they, they, it sets everything up like this. You've got the Torians who are the militant class and they kind of look almost like lizard like and kind of insect like. And, um, and for some reason, Garrus the Solarian, or sorry, uh, the Torian is the one all the girls want to bone. I don't get it. There are humans. And what's interesting about this game, in the first game that you learn, is there is the Citadel, which is where all the species all coalesce. And it's, it's like your one piece accord area, okay? But what's weird about it is there is one species that's not... And they, they have their own version of the police, like the Rome police or whatever, which are called the Spectres. And the weird thing that the first game introduces you to is the one species that's not on the board, the, the Citadel Council, and the one species that is not represented in the Spectres are humans. They're just, they're just not good enough. And your big deal is, first and foremost, you become the first human Spectre. And then the end cool. of that game, yeah. at the end of that game, either you save the council or you let them all die and save a bunch of humans. And either way, <laughs> no one to stop you from putting a human on the council. So wow. it's either – so they did a very good job of like either the council dies and then a human gets on the council because, well, no one to oppose that. Yeah. Or – you the council dies and you had to sac- or the council lives and you had to sacrifice a bunch of humans to do so and you're like yo I'm a human specter you're alive cousin me tons of people lost their lives all alien races lost their lives but including humans to save you yeah we deserve someone on the council right, and so humans right. are now getting integrated into it so now you're part of this world in the second game where all that import and everything dissolved the humans are still on the council, mm-hmm. um, but how you navigate this decides the impact of humanity because really no one did shit while you were gone. And I'm dancing around. We don't have to get into why just to avoid that spoiler, but sure. you're gone for like three years and no one takes up your reins out of the entirety of humanity in the entirety of the universe. No one was like, I strive to be that person. Okay. So, um, so Fred, um, as adults who work Mm -hmm. in organizations, I am familiar with this feeling and it is the dread (laughs) of taking paid leave because you know that when you come back, your pile of work is still there. Um, that's funny. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what this introduces. And so what's, what's interesting about this game is it learned from its mistakes in the first game from a storytelling standpoint. The first game was very binary, and oftentimes it went the wrong way with decision-making. Either it made it too obvious. So when I say binary, you could either do things that were Paragon or Renegade. Right. And it was way too black or white. Uh, right and what's interesting is um you will have never played it i don't think but star wars the old republic not um not knights of the old i've republic. also not played much of kotor yeah, but you're but, talking about but, the mmo um, yeah. but the mmo yeah. is that 
It is that. Okay. And your choices aren't just obvious. There's a blue highlight and a red highlight. <laughs> so light side. And these are two. Dark yes. Side. And I'm just when like, you are oh. picking when you are picking decisions later on in the original Mass Effect, mm-hmm. this is also in two, but I'll explain why it's more dynamic in a minute. Um it literally they're blue and red. And then there are the yellow ones, which are the neutral ones. And your ball would just move back and forth. So if you were like sure. way Paragon and you did a Renegade thing, it would just move you back a little Paragon, right? You'd just kind of be moving like a tug of war game. And yeah, again, it was very much so. It was like, it was like, like let's say a person's like, I'm not going to do your request. You had two choices. It was like hug him or punch him, right? Like it was too black or white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when the other time they screwed up decisions was this is at the very end of the game you have to pick which of your you have a com, two human companions Caden and Ashley and you have to pick which one lives and which one dies right. and whoever you pick they kill that person if you're like i want to go save ashley they kill ash gotcha yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and so that was done poorly in the second game how they fix this is you have renegade and paragon points growing at the same time mhm and you get more options the more points you have. So if you make only Paragon choices, the game goes, well, then that's your personality. We're going to block out a bunch of right um, Rebel choices. Or not not Rebel, but whatever. Yeah, whatever the red one is. Paragon and, and red. Um, we're going to block out a bunch of your Republican choices. Now, um, anyway, you're a bunch Whoa. of your... I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, a bunch of... Red and blue. Uh, a bunch of your red choices... Because you just haven't – Renegade, that's what it is. You haven't engaged with that. So your character can't suddenly do later in the game some of these dope-ass Renegade things mm-hmm. like punching a guy off a rooftop, which I think is a possibility. Um, it's just blocked off to you. But if you've grown up enough points and you can even skate the line where you're not nice enough to have all these high-end Paragon things where you can like talk someone into giving themselves up. Or you can't intimidate someone so much so that they think you're actually going to kill them if you haven't built up one side or the other. So it is very much like Hmm. Black Mage, White Mage, Red Mage, to put it in Final Fantasy terms. You get to decide what kind of choices you have based off of what you've done aggregately. Hmm. Okay. Um, This is... And you can see that bar. Yeah. So this is... Okay. Um, This is going to be a deep, strange poll that you will probably not understand. Um, there was a morality system in Ogre Battle, March of the Black Queen. Um, so th- this was an Atlas, uh, J, uh, uh, sorry, not JRPG. It was, Atlas, um, yeah. an SRPG. So a, a Japanese okay. strategy RPG, um, where you would accrue, um, holy or like good points, if you took on fights where the enemy was stronger than you um, and you succeeded um, and you would get bad points if you were more powerful. So like it was, it was almost an honor system, but the reflection was good and evil. Um, mm-hmm. And then those decisions would shape the, the new classes that would unlock as you play. Um, but that, in, that system was completely invisible. You you just had to have read the booklet to know that it was happening. So to know that the system is visible is interesting. Um, but then it becomes like this in, this weird game of like bean counting, recognizing that. Um, so so it's like um, I guess it's it's just uh, no, um, it's prioritization. 
like what you are, what you end up doing with that game is like, you have to learn how to prioritize because if you don't care and you want to be Paragon, like that is, that is just what happens. Right. And that is how you go. But you also have to understand that it shuts the doors for all those other opportunities uh, for gaming and, and for that narrative. And I think that's actually a really clever design. Um, well, and th- yeah, and this yeah. was one of the first games that started to do that. Yeah. And I remember I used to love doing evil stuff. Uh, Infamous on PS3, they mm-hmm. kind of did the same thing. They had a good and bad. Again, it was pretty binary. Sure. But I went bad. I was dark side all the way. Like, and it was really fun. And I don't yeah. know. Here's the thing, gamers. Here's what fascinates me. Most gamers, if given an option, will always go good, which is interesting because most humans, most people in their life are more in the gray area. Sure. But you're always the hero of your own story, right? Even if, even if externally, uh, other people don't see it that way. Um, you, (sighs) but you're not necessarily Paragon. You see what I'm saying? You're not Mm, always looking out for the greater good with everything you do. Nobody wants to be just the goody two shoes, but people mostly play video games that way. I'm certain there's tons of mass effects where everyone finished with a Paragon bar all the way to the top mm-hmm. and then no renegade and so for me this second time and that is absolutely how i played when i played for review <laughs> okay yeah for me now i just play first blush and i'm finding it to be more varied okay um, interesting the last part that they do that's that's kind of interesting and fun that you probably like is they have these times where a paragon or renegade option will show up in the lower right hand corner and you have to pull left or right trigger if you want to Hmm. and you don't know what it's going to do but it's going to fall in line with either of those yep and there was a time recently where this guy was pissing me off i was i was playing like me and um I was a uh, I was largely Paragon. This is this time through though, and I was um, recruited as a mercenary to go try to take out a bad guy. And I actually want this guy on my team. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's called the Archangel, and a, a bunch of um, gangs in this area hate him so much that they hate each other a lot. But they teamed up. It's like imagine if the Bloods and the Crips teamed up to take out one dude right. because he pissed them off enough. And so you go and meet with one of the bosses to get your assignment as a mercenary to go take this guy out. And the guy's just such a prick that all of a sudden a renegade option came up. And I was like, okay, sure. And I hit it. And he's like repairing a ship. And you grab the cattle prod and just zap him with it. And it was just this fun thing. And I got my renegade points. And I was like, I gladly take those renegade points. Um but yeah, and, and this actually reminded me of one other thing, which we can either move on or it can become a new talking point, which sure. was the idea that there was both male shepherd and female or femme shep. Uh-huh. And um, I just, I was femme shep through my entire trilogy originally. Yeah. Now I'm doing a male shepherd one. Um, and they're interesting, different things, but Jennifer Hale did the female shepherd. Right. And I have to say, I think she delivered a stronger performance. Okay. Um, and if I recall in Mass Effect 2, you were able to have romantic relations, um, with you could in all, oh yeah, you could in all three, but in Mass Effect 1, you couldn't have same sex relationships other than technically since the Asari are all looking like females, you could love an Asari, but, and only Fox News thought that was lesbianism. Right. Um, in this game. You can full blown like there's a guy there's a beautiful Nubian prince on my team Jacob and he I could 
he's not really like he's just this really hot black guy. But anyway, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can you can romance him as as male shepherd. Sure. And there's plenty of females that femme shep can get down with. Okay. Cool. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah. I th- yeah, that's interesting. I mean, again, having never engaged with it, um, I, like for me, it's just a question of was that significant at the time? But I, I'm not sure that we're the right people to talk about it. So um, here's here's two things I'll say that I feel comfortable saying. Yeah. At the time, it was cool to see that these options suddenly opened up. Right. Another thing was it was very much in the first game a balance of you could flirt with this person, but then it would affect the other person, which is true to life. But not everyone in today's society gives two shits if you're flirting. My wife does not care if I flirt with someone else as long as that's all it is. Yeah, sure. And the second thing is this game allowed for promiscuity. Okay, you yeah, could so like sleep with multiple people on the ship, yeah. yeah, and you would tell them, okay. and they could either be good with it or not, and everyone's personality made them good with it or not. I like the idea that this game said, you know what, this is more in line with where society's at, yeah, that's, that, um, okay, and we're going to allow really it. Interesting. Yeah. I don't think we need to dive too much deeper into that, because it kind of speaks for itself, right? Um, and it's interesting. And, like, and frankly, the love stories, they'll do better work in other games. <laughs> Okay. It was okay. them testing the waters. Okay. Well, um, cool. I think um, I think we may be coming to a point where we can shift away from games. Uh, we have, yeah, we're coming up on almost two hours here. So what I think I'm going to do, we're going to shift into the closing part of the show, if that's all right with you. Um, so before, before, uh, we start saying goodbyes and thank yous and all that, I'm going to open up the floor to you. Uh, you have been a guest, you have done a wonderful job of answering my probing questions. Uh, I give you the opportunity now. Is there anything you wanted to ask me before we close off? Um, and you know, you, you told me beforehand this would come and and I I should have thought about it. It's okay. Um, but no, I, there's one thing that is driving me nuts. Why haven't you played Mass Effect? <laughs> uh, just um, never got around to it. It's um, okay. I've got other priorities, Fred. <laughs> Damn, it's Damn, one of those cold. Yeah, no, it's. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what? Um, when it came out, actually, specifically when it came out, I was gaming on a PC and I would later pick up, I think it's a 360. Uh, I think it's that era, but there's a bit of a gap, um, in my gaming and it was just, um, I don't know. I was just, yeah, I was partying, drinking, doing other stuff. <laughs> like fair. I was busy with life at the time. Um, That's and fair. yeah, it, it fit right in the middle of that. There was, I was just more interested in doing other stuff or it could have been like a really heavy school load. Who knows at the time. Um, because yeah. I would get lost in essays or because I was in, um, I was in, uh, English language and literature, I'd get like four books that I had to read in a week. Um, so either I would not read all those and play a game I really wanted to play, but I, I never wanted to, to dedicate all that time to Mass Effect. It just never grabbed me. Um, and I don't know That's why. Fair. I don't know why. <clears throat> I was in film school, so that was a little easier. Uh, although... I, my degree is in journalism, and uh, journalism school definitely rocked my my shit those last two years. But uh, <laughs> yeah. didn't get a lot a lot of gaming in. Um, but uh, I do have one other question actually sure. that came up. Yeah, um, go ahead. What was your first platform? 
What was your first gaming platform? Uh, first gaming platform was the Intellivision. The Intellivision, but uh, because no everything kidding. had gone tits up, uh, there was all kinds of pirating and crazy stuff. We had an Intellivision with an Atari adapter. Um, so you could huh, shove yeah. an adapter and then put Atari carts into it, and it would play those. Um, like, just so funny. But, um, yeah, it was the Intellivision. Um, and for anybody who's never played the Intellivision, uh, it looked... It, it had the very same sort of zenith approach to uh, to decoration. It looked almost like it was wood paneled. Uh, it had um, like a brass overlay on the top. Um, and then you would shove the controllers in and the controllers, their wiring was the spooling uh, telephone wire from the time. So like the, the windy mm-hmm. wire. Um, and the controllers were, they, imagine your cell phone right now that shape with a number pad and then a disc at the bottom. And the disc was the directional disc. Um, and then they also had side buttons, which is weird because side buttons wouldn't make mm-hmm. a return until generations later. Um, yeah, they had like side. Oh, button buttons. that, that was definitely a response to the 5,200. I refuse to believe anything else. Um, so <laughs> like the Intellivision was or maybe the 5,200 was a response to that. Was, but either like way. I would argue a very good device, um, some very quality games on there, but, uh, it, it came at a bad time in gaming. <laughs> um, like it was being released in Japan to decent reviews, and then by the time it came over to the U.S., you weren't selling video games anymore. So it basically just went in the bargain bins. Um, but yeah, first experience was um, was in television. Very interesting device. Um, <laughs> okay, what I learned from that <laughs> device is um, the value of the in-pack materials that come with a game. Because what you would do is there was a little slot that you could slide um, controller overlays into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and give me a second because I actually have to explain what a controller overlay is because some people will have no fucking idea. <laughs> Most <Kay>. probably won't. <laughs> so when, when I say that this thing was a cell phone device, there was a little flap at the top. And in every single game, and you can look this up on the internet. I encourage you to do so because it's easier than me explaining it. Um, came with um, a thin plastic sheet that would go over top of those numbers. And those were the controls for the game. It told you what everything did on those sheets. And that's how you played the game. Um, so, n- like, number one, I was learning how to play dynamically because every single game had different controls. Mm-hmm. Um, but number two, I had to learn to maintain those things because we destroyed some of those overlays. And then I they wouldn't... Imagine. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't lay properly or, you know, they'd just be garbage. You'd have to throw them out. <laughs> yeah. And it's not like you can just buy replacements. You can just buy a replacement game because they were dirt cheap, but, um, <laughs> that's interesting too. Yeah. Uh, the crash. Uh, <laughs> um, but it was, it was nothing like a Nintendo. The Nintendo would be like leaps and bounds, uh, better, uh, in terms of, uh, what it would do, but it had some great games on there. Uh, our favorite my the first game I remember was uh, Frog Bog, which you were just a frog that jumped on lily pads, ate bugs, and you were just aiming to get the highest score. Very simple, but I loved it. Um, then there was a game called Snafu, uh, where it, it's like the snakes games that you see everywhere today, where you eat stuff and become bigger. 
or you get bigger over time. Um, but you could program it to have different modes. So you could do like the Tron mode where you leave the trail behind and you can, you can like trap people and kill them. Or there were modes where you had to eat each other's tail and you get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, yeah, it, interesting, interesting device. Um, and then our, our next system, like aside from, I think we had like a DOS based computer. Mm. So like completely DOS based, you had to do all the executables. Um, and it, it, it ran on like one there, the step up was like the DOS shell computer. <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually there was windows. Um, but, uh, Pre- yeah. And then the Nintendo, right. And then the yeah. Nintendo, but it was, uh, yeah. Interesting time. The before yeah. times. <laughs> um, yep. Uh, anything else you wanted to know? Uh, nothing's coming to mind, so I don't want to just like drag stuff out, but yeah, no, fascinating. Not, not a problem. Um, okay. So then Fred, we've come to it. We've come to the end. Uh, I can't do a hot ones exit where I'm like pointing at every, <laughs> every camera and you have to look at every single one uh, and plug your thing. But I think that's what we'll do. So, um, I want to thank you for joining us for today. And again, if there's anything you'd like to promote to the audience while you have a chance, feel free to do it right now. Cause we are going to end this show. All right. Um, two things I would point out is, uh, I do a podcast, which is a little more about kind of living life than gaming, but we definitely cover video games in it. Um, with me and my co-host trees. Um, and that is video game purists. You can find it at anchor FM, anchor.fm forward slash video game purists, or there's a podcast link at gaminghistory101.com. Um, I also do YouTube videos and I kind of fell out of it for a while, but I've hit the ground running getting back into it. Um, my output's a little slow because I'm, you know, just doing it for fun. Um, but, uh, there I do a lot of videos in, in very high quality and, um, Right now, I'm doing a project called Cron CD, where I'm chronologically playing every single game on the PC Engine CD, um, and and going over those. and uh, And then from time to time, I do just random, like like you said, experiential stuff. Mm-hmm. So, like I covered the Xbox Obi Wan game because I was like, I don't think a lot of people are going to play this, and there's a lot of snarky <laughs> reviews out there. So let's do something different with it. Yeah. So I encourage people to go check that out if they want to see kind of what I do, but it's like doing an experiential discussion about a game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, cool. And uh, just, just as a note, oh, yeah, that's the... youtube.com forward slash Fred Rojas. Um, I can, I can make sure that stuff is in the show notes. So, um, and actually I'll circle back to that. I'll explain that in a second when I, when I do the closeout, but um, yeah, I'll make sure to link um I can definitely link to the um, the video game purist feed and your YouTube. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. So for all the folks at home, uh, I want to thank you all for tuning in, uh, whoever you might be at this point. Um, if you've just stumbled onto this podcast, uh, we host on Podbean, uh, but that also means that we've got feeds that go out mm-hmm. everywhere. So you can find us on Spotify. You can find us on uh, iTunes. Um, if you are listening to this i'd like to let you know that we also have a youtube channel and the idea of this format is like today we're recording uh i will see how that goes (laughs) like i'm thinking the video is going to be usable there were a few weird moments where things froze up but the audio kept coming Mm. through clean so i think we're all right um that's going to be posted on youtube so look up uh, learn from gaming podcast on youtube 
I will also make sure there's a link to the videos there in the show notes if this goes live. Um, if not, I'll make sure to put a um, an addendum at the end of the audio version when we when we post that and be like, yeah, that didn't go live. <laughs> but I think I think this is usable. The point of this is to be a test. Um, but yes, there will be links to everything in the show notes. So if you need any, please look down there. Um, again, Fred, I want to say thank you for joining me today. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate your time and sharing your experiences. Um, and to everyone else out there, I hope everybody had fun listening and, uh, maybe learn something from it. <laughs> That's kind of the point. I hope. Yeah. So until next time, I just want to say bye.